is Sandy Clough and Sean Drotar on Mile High Sports. And good afternoon. Welcome on our final Football Friday program for the 23-24 football season. Sandy Clough, Sean Rotar, who will be joining us momentarily from Las Vegas, reporting on Super Bowl 58. This is Mile High Sports Radio, of course, 98.1 FM, 107.5 HD3. You can listen to us via milehighsports.com slash listen, or if you prefer to watch, milehighsports.com slash watch will do the trick. And, of course, the Mile High Sports app is always there. Our executive producer is the great and ever agile Danny Bailey, who has been virtually running wind sprints for the last five minutes. Uh, Danny and I are uh, a two-man gang here. Everybody else, it seems, is out in Las Vegas, and rightly so. We have uh, the most heavily staffed crew of the week in Denver local radio out in Las Vegas, and of course, our coverage is led by Sean Drotar. By the way, our caller text number is 303-831-1340 if you have some thoughts you want to share with us. But, Sean, as we begin today, we offer finally our official, completely confirmed congratulations to Randy Gratishar, who was officially at the annual NFL Honors in Las Vegas last night, elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Yes, obviously, you know, long overdue for Randy Gratishar and, quite frankly, uh, for that Orange Crush defense and and overlooked for far too long. Uh, It's great to see that, obviously. You know, we felt that that was going to happen when he was uh, elevated by the Seniors Committee, but then uh, last night that final word comes down, he will be in. It was a great great fit for Denver. This is the – Gratishar becomes the 14th Denver Bronco to be in the Hall of Fame that has played for the team for more than one season. And so more and more, when you think about John Elway becoming the first going in, now that feels as if the Broncos are more or less fairly represented. I think there's an argument to be made for Louis Wright. I think there's an argument to be made for Rod Smith. But otherwise, I think the Broncos have been fairly represented ever since. But it is interesting because a very good argument could have been made that Randy Gratishar should have been the first Denver Bronco into the Hall of Fame. But nevertheless, he is there. It's, uh, he was thrilled. We had an, I had an opportunity to sit down with him. You'll be able to hear that and talk with, uh, with Randy. So uh, it's, um, it's, a, it's a good moment. It's a good moment for Denver sports. It's a good moment for him. Uh, he was clearly overjoyed and a little mixture of relief. And uh, <laughs> I, I think feeling a little bit relaxed. You know, when you get a chance to hear from it, uh, there's a little bit of uh, some great breakdowns of that Joe Collier defense talking about how uh, we talked about how it really goes into today's NFL. And then, uh, Stick around because he um, he needles a couple teammates on that Orange Crush uh, defense as well, including the man that is going to present him when he gets to Canton, uh, Tom Jackson. Yes, uh, he and Tom Jackson have always had a very special relationship. They're completely different personality types, but uh, they played in an era, and this is true especially with respect to Tom Jackson, in which linebackers were not 6'3", 6'4", 250 pounds, as many of them are, if not all of them are today. Even Randy was not big for a linebacker, and Tommy was 215, 220, truth be told. 
Yeah, but and nowadays, you know, that's a wide receiver. <laughs> it's a yes. little bit different than than it was. Yes. But 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 the, the the through line, and you've done a great job. We've talked about it over, over the years, Sandy. The through line uh, between that Orange Crush defense, that that three four base that Joe Collier ran, with bringing pressure at a lot of different ways and stunts and and different angles. It's fascinating because we likened it a bit to what Steve Spagnuolo is doing right now with the Kansas City Chiefs. Absolutely. Obviously not exact, but it's you know 40-plus years later, nearly 50 years later. But at the same time, uh, you can see the genesis of that, and you can see how it still applies. When you can send pressure from places that, that your line does not expect, you can then very be very difficult to, to predict and be very difficult to attack. And it was nice getting to talk to, to Randy about that. But it really, for the Broncos, it finally feels – as if the, the the whole team feels complete. Every team in the NFL, you know, I talked about uh, Rod Smith and Louis Wright, and they're both deserving. But every every team in the NFL probably has some guys that aren't there that it feels oh, sure. not fair. But now with the Broncos, I I think with Gratishar in, I think that the idea of wow, the Broncos have not been treated fairly. They haven't been given the proper respect. It feels like Gratishar sort of closes that discussion, at least for me. That the, the Hall of Fame understands, the Denver Broncos understands the history and understands how well it fits together. And so I think that's it's such a big and exciting moment for not only Randy Gratishar, but for Broncos and for Broncos fans that, that have watched this team over the decades and, and sort of realized, yeah, the team had been shortchanged, but now it feels like that's no longer the case. Bronco fans understand this, but I'm not sure the national media uh, caught up to this until perhaps fairly recently, and I say national media, those voting for the Hall of Fame, uh, I'm not sure they understood either how bad the Broncos were, especially during their 10 years in the American Football League, and even, I I would say, mediocre at best during their first seven years in the National Football League. I'm not sure the national media and the voters understood that, nor did they understand that Randy Gratishar and that Orange Crush defense predated John Elway. I think there's an impression that the Broncos only became truly respectable when John Elway joined the team, forgetting the fact that the Broncos uh, will always be the first team ever in their first playoff year to go all the way to the Super Bowl. And that happened six years before John Elway showed up. That's a good point, Sandy. And that's why it's so great to have your perspective on this. Because I, you know, thinking about it, I believe you're right. I believe that a lot of people think the Orange Crush defense is there was an overlap or that that's generally what Broncos fans just called every Broncos defense. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. Supposed to understanding Absolutely. That, you know, you don't, you don't still call this. The Steelers don't have the steel curtain. That was an era. Dallas's doomsday defense was an era. Yeah. But I think you're right. I think that, that many people from a national standpoint looked at the Broncos as a curiosity and just assumed Orange Crush was just what the, uh, the Broncos fans just always called the, the team and not understanding that, yeah, that this was a defensive forward team. That that went twelve and two, if I'm not mistaken, in 1977. You are and correct. And they did it without scoring a tremendous amount of points. This was a defensively led team, yeah, and, and, and an offense that was uh, not terrifically explosive. You know, Haven Moses probably notwithstanding, but 
you're right. I think that there are a lot of people that, that as they don't understand Broncos history because they haven't really looked at it. And to them, from 1975 to basically 1995, they're not necessarily sure that there was much difference. To them, it's just kind of a big mush. And now I think bringing Gratishnar in brings a little more focus into the reality of, of multiple eras of outstanding Denver Broncos football. Uh, you're exactly right on all of those points. And I, I think part of this applied years ago to Floyd Little, who thankfully also got in after waiting far too long. When Floyd Little averaged 3.9 yards a carry here in Denver, people looked at that, uh, who should have known better, and said, well, what's, what's so special about 3.9? That's not Hall of Fame worthy. And I was like, did, did you do any research? Did you do any homework to understand how bad the Bronco offensive line was during those years with Floyd? How bad the quarterbacking was? The receivers, for the most part, weren't particularly good. Floyd Little was a one-man gang in every AFL defense and every NFL defense. Once the Broncos joined the National Football League, ganged up on Floyd Little. 3.9 for Floyd Little was the equivalent of what he would have averaged playing for an elite team, which would have been more like 4.9 or more. And so that, that perspective is lost on people. And the great irony to me, and I'll get off the point after this, and we'll move on to the Super Bowl. I never understood why a great writer uh, such as Paul Zimmerman was, Dr. Z, I read him growing up in the New York Post. He was on the Jets beat when the Jets were cool and the Jets were champions under Joe Willie Namath's leadership and also a very underrated defense that I happen to believe is underrepresented uh, at, at the Pro Football Hall of Fame. But in any case, Paul Zimmerman knew more about football than any writer that I've ever come across. And I knew him just a little bit. Uh, We had him on shows I hosted a number of times. I never understood why Paul Zimmerman made it his Hall of Fame mission to run down Randy Gratishar and suggest that his tackle totals were inflated by Joe Collier and the Bronco PR staff while at the same time arguing vociferously that Rich Tombstone Jackson, a great player in his day, should be in the Hall of Fame. When Paul Zimmerman knew Rich Jackson would never have the votes to get into the Hall of Fame. But Paul Zimmerman was safe and probably thought he was smarter for advocating for Rich Tombstone Jackson, and then turning around and saying, but Randy Gratishar was overrated. I, I, I never understood that. I'm not saying that Rich Jackson wasn't a great player. He was. He's one of my favorite people. I've been around him uh, a, a little uh, over the years. He's uh, in the Broncos Ring of Fame. He's yeah. in the Ring of Fame. And uh, he and Deacon Jones, to me, were co-equals, at least before uh, Richie's knees went out. And he couldn't play the same way anymore. But anyway, we'll move past that and on to Super Bowl 58. I know all week you've been talking about uh, liking the Chiefs. Uh, Give us your thoughts, your final thoughts on how this game might unfold. 
I think I do think it's going to be a close game. I think these are very good teams. I think when you look at the rosters, one to fifty-three, the San Francisco 49ers have the better team. I think it's it's it is that straightforward. But when you're expecting a game to be close, this is a quarterback league, and you have to take the best quarterback, and that's Patrick Mahomes. And, and it's no knock on Purdy because no matter what as it stands today, in here we are in twenty twenty-four. Patrick Mahomes is the best quarterback in the league. I don't even think there's a dispute. And so if he's on the other sideline, that's a guy I'm just learning not to pick against. We've seen him answer every single question. We've seen him do it at a championship level. We've seen him uh, do it with, with wide receivers that have been lesser. We've seen him with good wide receivers. We've seen him with a bad offensive line. We've seen him with a good offensive line. He's the same guy. And so to my mind, Mahomes is the difference maker. Now, could the 49ers win this game? You bet. They have a ton of talent. You know, if Christian McCaffrey goes off, if the Niners uh, get an early lead, you know, you can see a scenario in which you know, Kyle Shanahan might be able to uh, change the way he holds those leads. So it would not shock me if the 49ers were to win this game. But at this point, I do expect Kansas City to win it. I don't think it's going to be a blowout by any stretch, and it may even be late. It may even be Oh, Mahomes comeback that gets it done. But I, I have just learned, remember, Patrick Mahomes has 14 playoff wins in his career. That's the same as John Elway. Patrick Mahomes is 28. If he wins 15, not only does he match his jersey number, he matches Joe Montana. That's how much of a clutch performer this guy has been. And so I just can't pick against him. But I do think it's going to be close. I think it's going to be a field goal game. I can't even imagine... Uh, a game in which it, it, the win is double digits. I think it's you know one point to a maximum of of six points in this one. But I just cannot go against the Chiefs. I've done it once in the last couple years when I picked the Ravens a couple weeks ago. I'm not going to make that mistake again. Give me Kansas City. Well, I made it twice in the playoffs because I picked Buffalo the week before and I picked the Ravens uh, not to win handily, but to win. Yes. Uh, and I, I wasn't into the Chiefs. Have never played uh, a game on the road in the Mahomes Reed era. I, I wasn't really into that. I just thought Buffalo and Baltimore were really good teams. Buffalo was peaking at the right time. Baltimore was, I thought, most all year the best team, far and away the best team in the American Football Conference. At the end of the year, I thought it was pretty clear they were the best team in the National Football League. Uh, and even uh, some of those picking the 49ers have pointed out in these playoffs, the Chiefs have beaten better teams than the 49ers have beaten. And in doing so, the Chiefs have played a better brand of football in executing those victories than the 49ers have played. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And, of course, uh, I think they'd be only the sixth team in history were they to win to knock off both number one seeds on the way to the Super Bowl. Wow, you're right. that's, a, that's a great, that's yeah, a great uh, bit of information, a little tidbit yeah, it, there. It's, uh, so what they're doing is obviously it's not, it's not unprecedented, but it's rare were they to win. Yeah, I, I just think they're playing better. And you think about, um, it was funny, you know, I'm talking with Nate Lundy of, of My Life Sports just before I came on, and, and we were chatting about uh, some of the, the folks we've heard from the sports book at Caesars. And they pointed out that the, Props on Travis Kelsey, the, whether it's to win MVP, to score a touchdown, to score the first touchdown, to get whatever yards. There are more props placed on Travis Kelsey than there are the spread or the line at Caesars. How about that? 
<laughs> so, I mean, the Swifty Super Bowl is in yeah, full effect. the Swifty Super Bowl. As much yeah. as I've just talked about how great Patrick Mahomes is, I will say this. I think the, the, if there is one player on this field that I think is going to decide this game, thinking of Patrick Mahomes, if you're thinking of Travis Kelsey, if you're thinking of Brock Purdy, you're thinking of Christian McCaffrey, no. I think the most important person who may be the deciding factor in the Super Bowl is Kansas City's defensive lineman, Chris Jones. I think if he ends up having a good game where he is disruptive like we've seen him before, I think that's the catalyst to a Chiefs win. Let me build on that just a second. I agree with you on Chris Jones. I'll give you another defender who plays for the other side. And I think if he plays as well or has as big or a greater impact on the game than Jones has, the 49ers will win. His name is Fred Warner and he is the best linebacker far and away in the National Football League. And I'm not including edge rushers. I, I'm saying inside linebackers, off-ball linebackers. Fred Warner is the best there is. Uh, will he have the same impact as Jones? We'll see. Uh, Jones can impact the game probably in more ways than Fred Warner can. Fred Warner's not going to have a sack in the game on Sunday. And, in fact, that gets me back to a point that I wanted to ask you about. Of all the things we talk about with Patrick Mahomes, what's the one thing that we're certainly aware of but we almost never talk about? His ability to avoid sacks. And I I will give you an over-under. The 49ers win the game if they have three or more sacks of Mahomes. If it's two or fewer, especially if it's zero, the Chiefs will win. And zero has been the number for a lot of the playoffs here as Mahomes has really been very effective at, at reducing those sacks. But I think you're right. Warner, look, in Warner's case, his stats wouldn't stand out. It would be the fact that at least he limits a little bit of what Kelsey can do and exactly. the run. And if exactly. he could do that, the, yeah, the stats wouldn't stand out, but he would be one of the difference makers in the game. Uh, Kelsey at this point, especially when teams are backing the safeties off, and the Niners will do so as well. That's what everybody does in the league. That leaves the middle of the field open for one of the league's most unguardable players and a guy that basically has a mind meld with his quarterback. They know where each other is at all times. So Warner is one of those really important guys as well. But you're looking at – you talk about Warner, you talk about Jones, you talk about Kelsey, you talk about Mahomes, you talk about McCaffrey. We're talking about the best at their position in the league, each of those guys. I mean, when you're talking about top-end talent in the Super Bowl, this is tremendous the best quarterback in the league, the best running back in the league, yeah. the best tight end in the league, the best left tackle well, the best in the two league. Tight ends Trent Williams. In the league. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah, you look at Trent Williams, the best left tackle. Yep. Creed Humphrey's the best center in the right. league. Uh, right. you, know, you go to the other side and you have Nick you have Bosa. You have Warner, as you pointed out. Yep. You have Shavarius Ward. You have yeah. Jarius Sneed. Yeah. You have yeah. all of those guys <laughs> who you can make the argument are the best of the best, and they're in this game. It's going to be spectacular. Well, I agree with you, and uh, we'll, we'll let you go on on this. Uh, and it, just I, I was stunned when I read this today because I, I would have guessed the number uh, would be higher. Teams that have won three Super Bowls within a five-year span, the Pittsburgh Steelers, 74, 75, and 78. The Dallas Cowboys, Jimmy Johnson's Cowboys, at least two of the three championship teams were, 92-93 and under Barry Switzer in 95. New England did it twice, but it's still just one team, 01-03-04, 14-16-18, 
And Kansas City, if they win on Sunday, would be only the fourth team in almost 60 years of Super Bowl competition to win three Super Bowls in five years, and they'd become only the seventh team to win back-to-back. So they're playing for dynasty, and they're playing for history. Kyle Shanahan, maybe to a lesser extent, Brock Purdy, playing for legacy. Because I I think especially for Kyle, his legacy, uh, young a coach as he is, will be affected by whether the 49ers win or lose this game. Absolutely. In fact, if you were to ask me who has the most to lose in this football game is Kyle Shanahan. Because I agree. already the Reed has nothing you know, to lose. Right. 28 to 3. We know about that. We know about this run of the Niners has been good and it's been close but not good enough uh, that there has been the questions about the way the leads have been held that they had a 10 point lead the last time they played the Chiefs in the Super Bowl 4 years ago and couldn't hold it. And, and right now until they shake it that's going to be Kyle Shanahan's reputation, fair or unfair. That's how it works. Your legacy is written in big games, even though it's a team sport and it's not one person's fault. That's just how it works, and nobody knows that any better than Kyle Shanahan, who's been around this his whole life. But, yes, he has a lot to lose because the idea that you just can't get it done in the big game tends to stick. But you know what? It also stuck for John Elway for a long time when the Broncos went to the Super Bowl and after the 86, 87, and 89 seasons, and they got beaten more soundly each time out. But then again, at the end, comes back and wins, and all of that gets erased. And for Shanahan, it would be the same thing. All of those ghosts get erased with a win. That's a monumental gain. But coming back to another Super Bowl and losing again, and remember, this is the fourth matchup of head coaches that are they're rematched in Super Bowls. The person who won the first won the second all three times. For Shanahan, this is the – I think he has the biggest amount of legacy on the line in this particular game. And you know what? We've talked about it before. Coaches are important. They're immensely important. But they're not actually in between the lines. The players still have to win the games. But for Kyle Shanahan, yes, maybe the most important story career-wise yes. in the game. Thank you, Sean, for the great work you've done this week. We appreciate it. We'll be hearing a lot from you throughout the rest of the program, of course. Uh, you have uh, uh, Jeffrey uh, Shadia from the uh, NFL Network, NFL Media, and, of course, uh, among others, uh, you've had the chance to talk to Randy Gratishar, the newly minted Hall of Famer, and we'll hear from you and Randy a little bit later on in the program as well. But uh, my thanks, first of all, and our thanks, I'm sure our audience appreciates uh, the terrific reporting that all of you have done, uh, particularly you, during the course of this week. Thank you. Uh, we appreciate it. Uh, it's, uh, it takes a team for sure, and it really is uh, It is a privilege to be able to come out and do these Super Bowls. And, and it's a lot of work, and it's busy, and it's chaotic, but every single time at the end, as, as tired as you are, you realize, wow, what a special opportunity you have uh, to the people you get to talk to, the people you get to work with, uh, the experience, the excitement around town in Las Vegas hosting its first Super Bowl. Uh, it's just been a pleasure, and it's uh, a privilege to do it. So uh, I'm, I've really enjoyed it. I'm looking back to getting uh, back in the studio with you on Monday. But, yes, this has been a treat. And guess what? We get to come back on Monday and break down one more football game. That's that right. That's right. On our final football Friday of the year, that's Sean Drotar live on Radio Row from Las Vegas, Nevada. Super Bowl 58. Well, we kind of begin the countdown now because it'll be roughly this time in 48 hours 
that uh, the Super Bowl game will begin featuring the San Francisco 49ers and the Kansas City Chiefs. When we come back, the defending NBA champions played maybe, maybe their best game of the year last night at Crypto.com Arena against the L.A. Lakers on a night when the life of Kobe Bryant was commemorated and celebrated. What a stage for the Nuggets and what an opportunity taken advantage of by Jamal Murray in particular. We'll talk about all of that coming up next right here on Mile High Sports. Stay with us. Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar, presented by Superbook Sports. Download the Superbook app and start winning today at Superbook.com. Here's Sean and Sandy. The Nuggets last night played a game in Los Angeles against the Lakers, and beating the Lakers is old hat by now for the Nuggets. Last night's win gave them seven straight wins over Los Angeles in head-to-head competition. Of course, the Nuggets swept the Lakers in the Western Conference Finals on their way to their first NBA title last year, and they did so rather handily. Uh, There were a few anxious moments here and there from game to game, but there was never a sense that the Lakers would get a foothold and have any chance even to threaten the Nuggets in the series. Uh, The outcome of the series was never in doubt. The game last night, although many of the same players were involved, a a very different kind of game. Uh, The Nuggets finished the first quarter well and led 29-23. By halftime, it was 59-49, and if they didn't have a stranglehold on the game, the Nuggets certainly appeared to be in control of it. The Lakers bounced back with a good third quarter, 30-24, to to close the margin from a 10-point deficit to a 4.1, entering the fourth. And the fourth quarter was about as good a regular season quarter as you're going to see, both sides defensively and offensively played extremely well. The best players were terrific last night Uh, for the Lakers. Anthony Davis, 32 points, nine rebounds, three assists, three steals, four blocks, and only one turnover in 38 minutes. LeBron James, ho-hum, 25 points, nine rebounds, seven assists, one steal, one block, only two turnovers in 35 minutes. And when you went to the other side, the Nuggets actually had three players rather than the Lakers, two who were outstanding. Michael Porter Jr., 27 points, eight rebounds, two assists, one block, only one turnover in 38 minutes. Nikola Jokic, one assist shy of yet another triple-double at 24-13-9 with three blocks. He did turn it over 
six times, but in 36 minutes was a plus 10. The best player on the floor last night, though, was Jamal Murray of Denver. 29 points, seven rebounds, 11 assists, two steals, only three turnovers, plus 17 in 36 minutes. And at every moment of the game, when things got tight, it was Murray getting the job done. He had a third of the total number of assists that the Nuggets had for the night, 11 of their 33. He made a three-pointer when the game was tied at 104 with 156 remaining from 26 feet, then followed with an 11-footer on the run with a minute 32 remaining, Porter's three from 22 feet with 105 remaining, basically put the game away, and Porter added for good measure a dunk with a little over 52 seconds remaining as the Nuggets went on a 10-2 run in the final minute 56 to win the game by eight. 114 to 106. And of all the things that Coach Michael Malone could have talked about after the game, what struck him, and I think struck most of us in watching it, was the way the ball moved. Everybody was involved on a night when, for the Nuggets, Caldwell Pope did not play. And uh, while the bench was okay, it certainly wasn't the deciding factor in the game. Although everyone who came off the bench last night, Reggie Jackson, Peyton Watson, Christian Brown, DeAndre Jordan, had at least one assist. Everybody who played in the game last night, even Holiday, who only played 22 minutes, filling in the starting lineup for Caldwell Pope. Even he had one assist. Michael Porter, who's not going to lead the league in assists anytime soon, he had a couple. The Nuggets played nine guys last night. They all played unselfishly, if not brilliantly. 33 Nugget assists for the evening was the big difference in the game. And Malone took note of that as well. What does it mean for a team that your two best players, two stars, get 20 of your 33 assists? Well, that means that there's a complete buy-in. I mean, uh, we preach being selfless all the time, trusting the pass, playing with the .5 mentality, good to great, all the different you know, coaching cliches that you could use in terms of trying to be unselfish. And you can talk about it. But if you're not about it on the court, well, then it's just a hollow word. But our guys live it. You know, they, they walk that walk. And, and I think everybody in that court is constantly trying to make the guy next to them better. And, you know, one thing I always say about our group is that our guys truly play for each other. You know, and I think when you watch games in the NBA, there's a lot of teams that happen to play with each other. And there's a huge difference, as you know, Scott. So guys just making the right play, man. I put two, I, I attract two defenders. Let me get off it. Trust that next guy to make the right play. And uh, it's, it's a fun way to play. And I think it's a beautiful, uh, you know, game to watch when we play the right. He's exactly right on every single point he made. And take note of the distinction. Uh, Danny Bailey, I'm sure you picked up on it. Teams can play starting lineups, various other lineup combinations. They can play with one another. Playing for one another, hey, that's the line that the Nuggets crossed, the threshold, as it were, to become a championship team last year. It was, and the Nuggets have had plenty of very unselfish teams, particularly during the 1980s with Doug Mose, 
teams that weren't the most talented all around, but shared the basketball. And in the passing game, you had to do that. The Nuggets don't run the passing game, but they might as well run it because that's how they play. They are the most unselfish team in the NBA by a fairly wide margin. And to play for your teammates, your four other teammates, is very different than playing with your four other teammates. And that's what distinguishes the Nuggets, and that's what makes the argument that the Nuggets have the best starting five in basketball compelling because it isn't necessarily the most talented, best all-around starting five. It's just the most unselfish. And unselfishness, to my way of thinking, has always been the key to winning basketball. And the Nuggets had that on display last night. Hey, the Lakers had 27 assists against only seven turnovers, almost a four-to-one ratio. The Lakers played as well as they could possibly play. And the game was even going into the final one minute, 56 seconds of a 48-minute game. And the Nuggets, due to their seasoning and their intelligence, and yes, most of all their unselfishness, won the game 10-2 to in the final minute, 56, and that was the difference in their winning by a final score of 114 to 106. Across the board, efficiency, 48.5% from the field, almost 44% on threes. The Nuggets only got to the foul line seven times. They made six of the seven free throws. They out-rebounded the Lakers 50-39 to and 14-10, to more importantly, on the offensive boards. And... The Nuggets finished the night in second place in a virtual tie for first. Both teams at 36 and 16, the Nuggets and the Minnesota Timberwolves. At 35 and 16, you have Oklahoma City. And at 34 and 16, you have the Clippers. It could hardly be much closer at the top of the Western Conference. When we come back, we'll take you back to Radio Row in Las Vegas for Sean Drochar's conversation with Jeffrey Shadia of NFL Media. That's next. This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. Welcome back to Radio Row, live from Las Vegas, Super Bowl 58. My name is Sean Drotar. Thanks for being here. Joining us, Jeff Shadia, the writer for NFL.com and NFL Network. You're on air as well. And Jeff, it's a pleasure to, act- to have you here because uh, it- this is such a fascinating matchup. And you-, you have a rematch of teams that played in the Super Bowl four years ago. But I've mentioned this before. Out of the players that touched the ball offensively, only six remain. Mm-hmm. Mahomes, of course, Kelsey, Kittle, Debo Samuel, Kyle Juszczyk for the Niners. 
and McCole Hardman, who had two touches for negative four yards in the last Super Bowl. But otherwise, the idea is overseeing these teams again and again, but not really because the NFL and the salary cap means there's always turnover. Yeah, it is. It is. It's kind of weird because you look at San Francisco, they do have on the defensive side some guys who have been around here and actually a couple of guys who have played in this game as well and uh, Shavarius Ward and, you know, it's, I think Kansas City, too, has got Donovan Smith and Mike Edwards, right? And so mm-hmm. they've got some guys here who've been in this game. So that, that matters a lot. It does. I think you look at experience. AFC Championship game, I felt the Baltimore Ravens would be hurt by that. And you saw how that played out. I don't think it's as much of a factor in this. But I do feel like these teams are as even as they were the last time they played. There's a lot of um, – I think this game comes down to the weaknesses more than the strengths. We'll talk about Mahomes and the, the Niners and all this stuff, their offense. But I do think it's about – whether the offense the Chiefs have put out there can, can, can sustain itself and whether the Niners' defense, which has struggled in the postseason, can get back to what it's been. Yeah, and, and that's an interesting part of it because as they're playing now, today, it seems as if the Niners are actually uh, maybe the inferior defense to the Chiefs. The Chiefs have been playing so well that uh, in the last few games that perhaps the, they're the defense to look out for in this game, and that's not how people expected it for the majority of the season. Yeah, including Kansas City, right? And they came to this right. year. Yeah. <laughs> and it's going to be one they more year. It's going to be this. Mahomes and big time offense. And now it's like, hey, we got to win game 17 to 13 to get this thing going. And you make the case that this defense, they would not be here without this defense. Right. Might not be in the postseason. Right. Without this defense. And so Steve Spagnolo, their coordinator, has done a phenomenal job of taking this unit and really molding it to what he wants it to be. Very aggressive, very blitz happy, really good with man coverage in the corner with Legarius Sneed and Trent McDuffie. But really very well aware, they have to win the games for this team. That, that Ravens game, one less turnover from them, one more turnover by the offense, and they're not here. Right. And so they've found a way to, to make the play they've had to make, and I think they take a lot of pride in being able to be that kind of defense now. And on the other side of it, that's sort of the magic that we've seen this year from Patrick Mahomes. I mean, he's answered a lot of the questions. He hadn't played on the road. Okay, problem solved. Well, he hadn't had to come from behind. Problem solved. And even though they don't have all the weapons that they had prior, you still have number 15. And as creative and innovative as he plays the game, the part that's important, as you point out, he's safe. When he makes a throw that looks amazing, but you actually, but then zoom out and notice that actually wasn't a risky throw. It looked, it looked remarkable highlight throw, but not risky. He has a tendency of putting it where either it's an incompletion, it's safe, or even when he finds it, buys enough time and then he's throwing to an open part of the field. So if he doesn't get all on it, it's okay. That to me seems to be the part of Mahomes' game that I think it's overlooked is the fact that he just doesn't make those costly mistakes that lead to game changing turnovers. If you, and if you go back to the AFC Championship game 2021 season when he lost to Cincinnati, he had a throw at the end of that game to McCole Harbin that got picked off. The Bengals ended up winning the game. And after the game, in his press conference, he said, I would make that throw again. I wanted to give my guy a chance. Tyreek Hill's a great receiver. And I thought at that point, he's got to learn to not think that way. And he did. He did. Right. <laughs> Ever since that Doesn't point, do it. no interceptions, no sacks in the six postseason games right. since then. And it's, I agree with you. People will want to sit here and expect him to have a 500-yard, five-touchdown day, and it's going to be all this fireworks. And really, he's been a phenomenal game manager. He's been Tom Brady in these moments. And we that's need to kind of stop talking about that. The, the game manager label. We need to rewrite that because now we see defenses, you know, backing safeties off. They're making sure that they don't get beaten over the top by the Tyree Hills of the world. But it, because of that, now generating turnovers for defense has kind of become priority one. If that's the case, then as a quarterback, 
keeping that from happening is equally critical. And I, I we, we file that under game management. We need to come up with either a better term or get over the fact game manager isn't a bad thing. In fact, you ask head coaches, they'll take that every day. They yeah. want to make sure you don't turn over the ball. That's more important than even getting the touchdowns. Yeah, in a lot of ways, postseason football is like watching postseason baseball where if you're in a one nothing pitcher's battle, you don't want to have an error. You don't want right. to have like, the big hit kills you. It's like you want to be able to be in a position to make the plays. And I'll take you back to the AFC Championship game with Baltimore, Lamar Jackson, Buffalo with Josh Allen. In both those games, both those quarterbacks had opportunities to manage the game, mm-hmm. to make the right decision. And with Josh Allen, it was the, obviously the, the throw he couldn't make to Khalil Shakur when he could have gone underneath the Stephon Diggs. Right. With Lamar Jackson, it was waiting in the pocket too long, trying to make this big play down the field, and you're getting strip sacked instead of running. That's how you win. And that's what the Chiefs learned. That's what Patrick Mahomes realized. It's not – we're not going to overpower you. Mm-hmm. We're going to outthink you. Right. And that's well, the key. You talked about it at the beginning uh, just a couple of minutes ago. This Super Bowl will probably be decided by mistakes. Yep. Who ends, you know, weaknesses. What team makes the error in, the, in that situation? And I guess when I look at it, even though uh, as, as it stands today, that the 49ers are a, a slight favorite, it just feels to me that when you're talking about a game that's going to be decided by one or two mistakes, I look at the team that's been there and done that. And especially when you have the pairing of Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes, guys that know how to do this and keep their cool. The thing about Reid and Mahomes, even even though they, they seem to be so different personality-wise, the part they have the same is more or less, with a couple of moments this year where we saw some emotion from Mahomes, but more or less they're very even keel guys. Whether they're up or whether they're down, they kind of have a poker face for you. We'll deal with whatever comes. Yep. And, and they also recognize there's points to the game where we're going to have opportunities to make plays that win it, and you will have opportunities to make plays that win it. And what will you do with those moments? And what you do in those moments will determine what we do. And I think that's where they've really grown a lot. I've had this argument with people about where they're at and how they're able to dominate this stage. And I said, you know what? Let's not forget, Andy Reid lost his first three NFC Championship games. Yep, He lost his first Super Bowl. He lost his next NFC. He didn't get here. It took him like 15 well, years. And, to get and, here. and he got fired. Yeah, he got fired. Because of it. Yeah. Because of it. Right. Yeah. And so he's seen the other side of this. So he understands that. It's like, yeah, you can out-scheme people and want to outperform them with big, big numbers. But ultimately, the games, these games are always decided by four or five plays. And they know that. And so it really comes down to, can Brock Purdy, I said this, can Brock Purdy, be what Eli Manning was right. to Tom Brady yes. in those Super Bowls. Just be what enough. Tom Brady was to the Rams. Because those games, people don't remember like the big numbers. They remember the plays, right. the moments. The moments, exactly. You have a story in the official program. That's obviously really cool. And I guess I would like to get your opinion here because I've asked a couple of folks about this. Earlier in your career, in my career, the idea of holding a Super Bowl in Vegas was unfathomable. Yeah. The idea of having a team in <laughs> yeah. Las Vegas, no way. Now the NFL has four different official betting yeah. sp- partners, all in. multiple fantasy. Everyone is all in, and, and, and all of this would have been you know you wouldn't even you wouldn't even hint at it before because someone would be Taboo. worried about trouble. Now looking at the the NFL, just embracing that world, embracing Vegas, understanding that this is this is where it's all going. What's it done for the NFL to open itself up to different audiences? Well, I think they've realized we can't just stand pat. Like, we've obviously dominated the sports landscape for the last, whatever, four or five decades. But they, they recognize this is where the, the new frontier is. And it's okay to get into these relationships if you manage them correctly. And so I think I'd add Taylor Swift to this, too. I think they see the, the, yeah. the viability in that of being able to open. Sure. Because really, it's, you know, you go back to – 
you know, I don't want to get too political. You go back to the, when the Black Lives Matter movement was really yep. going nuts and they were worried about the popularity of the game and our people are going to be accepted. I think that may have spurred some of this and the recognition of, you know, people aren't just going to sit in front of their TVs and watch this game anymore. They're going to watch it on their phones. They're going to watch mm-hmm. it on their tablets. They're going to get their highs from different places. And so let's go to where they're at. Right. A lot of people are in this world, in this gambling sp- sphere, trying to figure it out. So I think it's smart. Yeah, it is. It's a, it's a great point because the NFL is understanding that the smart leagues are because people are there are always going to be fans that watch every detail of every game and they're low recorded. And they'll look it over and over again. But a lot of people actually are just getting it in bites, little bits and bites. And so uh, there's a highlight mentality, obviously, but there's also an opportunity to bring new audiences in. And I think you're right, too, that the whole Taylor Swift effect. You wouldn't if you would have asked the NFL, can you bring in tens of millions of people who haven't yeah. watched football yeah. uh, that also, you know, love buying merch? Yeah, I think they would say, yeah, we'll sign up yeah. for that every yeah. single day. Yeah. yeah. Where do we go? What do we need to talk? <laughs> who do we need to talk to? It will be a tremendous Super Bowl. Looking forward to it. Pick up the official program. You can get that. Even if you're not at the game, you can always order the official program. Jeff Judy has a story in that as well. Make sure you check him out at NFL.com, NFL Network, where you are. And you can find him on social media, Jeffrey Chidea. That's G, uh, J-E-F-F-R-I, Chidea, yep. uh, C-H-A-D-I-H-A. Uh, yeah, Got it, man. There we go. So, right. yeah, well, my last name's Drotar. It gets messed up, too. So. <laughs> I get it. You have to spell it all the time. It's been a pleasure. Uh, have, a, have a wonderful week. Obviously, it's going to get really busy, but it's been great to sit down and Talk a little bit of X's and O's and where the league's going. Thank yeah, you for the time. Here. Great meeting you, man. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Jeffrey Chadia joining us live from Radio Row. We will be back with more, of course. We're here all week in Las Vegas with My Life Sports. And, in fact, we will be going back in just a few moments to Radio Row. Or Sean Drotar met up with the Hall of Fame receiver Steve Largent. That's coming next. And uh, I must say, I will always remember, first and foremost, about Steve Largent. Having spoken about Lewis Wright earlier in this hour as a deserving pro football Hall of Famer, maybe there will come a time when Lewis Wright joins Randy Gratishar and more than a dozen other Broncos who have played at least one year in a Bronco uniform in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. There was one receiver during Louis Wright's career that he had trouble with. Game after game after game after game. Only one. And it was Steve Largent. He was Louis Wright's kryptonite. And Jim Zorn was the quarterback. A good quarterback, but hardly a great one. But Jim Zorn was the only quarterback whoever played against Louis Wright and said, I don't care that Louis Wright is a guy that everybody else avoids because everybody else doesn't have Steve Largent. Sean Rotar and Steve Largent, just ahead. Stay with us on Mile High Sports. <laughs> 